Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 193 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Um, we got markets selling off after Jerome Powell spoke and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen spoke yesterday, had more Dayton Flyers enter the transfer portal. So this week is slowly going downhill and i want to turn that around today so we still got time so got today thursday and friday i hope that we can we can do that so um before we begin as always just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track and these uh numbers are as of the market close on march 22nd this data is from y charts s p 500 index down 0.8% for the month, up 2.5% for the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1.9% for the month and up, or excuse me, down 3.4% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index up 1.9% for the month and up 11.5% for the year. The iShares Russell 2000 uh, ETF that represents the small cap index down 8.8% for the month, down 1.5% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF, down 0.8% for the month and up 3.1% for the year. Three-month Treasury rate sitting at 4.79%, two-year Treasury rate at 3.96%, and the 10-year Treasury rate at 3.48%. Um, so obviously, Matt, big news was yesterday uh, the Fed raised rates by uh, another 0.25% or 25 basis points. Um, and many think that the Fed is kind of done after uh, yesterday raising interest rates, uh, which I have a little bit more information on this here in a little bit in the tweets, articles, and research. But uh, what are your thoughts after Powell spoke yesterday? Well, what's interesting is, you know, he continued to talk uh, tough that if inflation doesn't continue to come down, that they will raise if they have to to contain it. And um, it's interesting, even though he said that, there was no move in interest rate uh, futures, or I would say in layman's terms, expectations for the rest of the year. And the market is still expecting upwards of two to possibly three rate cuts before year end. And it's just funny to sit there and hear uh, what Powell was saying, and then you look at the markets and there was no movement at all. Right, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, You know, I I think it's also interesting that, you know, over the past two weeks, we've heard nothing about inflation. No, (laughs) no, it's funny you say that. You know, the other comment that I have is whether he did a quarter of a point yesterday or waited to do a quarter of a point in May, to me, that was not the news story. Because I think the fact that they were going to do one more quarter was going to be there. So I think how they play this out in Fed speak over the next six weeks before the next meeting, we'll see what this consumer price index data uh, reflects coming up here next month in April for March. But, you know, if we continue to see that come down year over year, I, I think that um, 
you know, they're, they're done hiking, but that's just a personal opinion. And I can't stress that enough personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I'm going to, I'm just going to jump into my piece that I had about the fed and, and interest rates. This was uh, my second item that I'm just going to move up to my first, but um, Jenna will throw this chart uh, on the YouTube video for people that are watching. It's a chart from John Roke, uh, who is the managing director of Wolf Research. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, the chart shows that the Fed usually stops hiking rates when the two-year Treasury yield falls below the Fed funds rate, uh, which it now has. And, you know, this is just more of a sign that the Fed is, if not already there, closer and closer to the end of their rate hike campaign. And, you know, the, the SVB failure might have been that final catalyst. And um, there's actually a lot of it, this chart reflects more things than just the Fed's done hiking, I think. Yes. It, the Fed really just ties the Fed funds rate to the two-year yield. I mean, if you look at this chart, Matt, <laughs> it pretty much just follows exactly. I mean, it does. And this what chart, the two-year yield does. This chart goes back how far? Uh, 1980s, early okay, 1980s. I mean. So, for those looking at the chart, and I highly encourage you to check this out if you're listening to this. The blue line is the effective federal funds rate, the rate that the Federal Reserve sets in the country. Um, overnight lending rate for, for banks and what, what have you. And then the two-year treasury yield is the black line. And notice how the market the 19, always leads. The market the, leads. Yeah, back to the 1980s, the two-year yield spikes up, then the Fed rates, uh, fund, funds rate follows it and vice versa. Two-year yield comes down, Fed funds rate comes down. So it's kind of interesting I wonder, you know, I, I listened to a podcast by a guy by the name of Meb Faber. He has his own investment company. Mm -hmm. um, and his theory is that when the Fed gets together and meets, they just talk about sports and talk about other things because <laughs> all they do is peg the Fed funds rate to the, to the two, two year, year yield. And they come up with they have this standard release that they have when they have a Fed announcement and the market will analyze any word change. And it's funny, people will show the press release from six weeks ago to the press release to yesterday, and they'll just kind of highlight the changes. Mm -hmm. And it could be, and I'm not exaggerating, less than maybe um, 15 words have changed. So what they do it's is like they get together, Mark. Okay, hey, let's get the business out of the way, everyone. <laughs> let's change the 15, 16 words we got to do. All right, who's got, who's got March Madness? Who has the update in the pool? <laughs> And that's it's interesting. It's just, you know, and maybe that's just an unspoken thing that, you know, they're always going to target the, the, the two year yield. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying if you look back at history, back at least to 1980, it seems to be what they're tracking. Well, <clears throat> look at where the two year two year yield was a month ago and look where it's at now. Mm -hmm. No wonder the market is anticipating rate cuts over the next 12 months. And if we go back to what I talked about a couple of weeks ago in the podcast, I had some data about how the stock market going back multiple decades, I think it was to the 1940s, how the market performed in rising interest rate environments, falling interest rate environments, rising inflation, falling inflation. And of those four sub data sets for our listeners didn't catch it, the one that had the worst returns was rising inflation. The other three 
or just fine. Mm -hmm. And guess what, folks? Ding, ding, ding. We're in a falling inflationary environment. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Right, right. So I'm interested to see when the, my when the two soapbox, Jenna. <laughs> when the two year yield started selling off. When did the whole when was the exact date of like the SVB thing? Um, it would have been Thursday two weeks ago. So that would have been the ninth. Is when they had all the massive withdrawals. The ninth? Yeah, yeah that's exactly when the, the two year started selling Boom! off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean you know, at that point, the two-year was at 5.05%, and we're already down to 4.17%. Folks, I cannot tell you how much of a massive move that is in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. That is massive, Mark. Yeah. Massive. Yeah, it is. It is. And another interesting, I guess, to point out right now is that the— um, the 3010 treasury yield curve is now back into positive territory. So it's no longer inverted. So we'll see if that's a future sign for the shorter end yield curves. Um, so just to throw that out there. All right. Um, next thing I had, which was the first thing I had, was uh, it's kind of a, I guess, depending on how you take it and how you view financial markets, a funny. Uh, tweet from Freezing Cold Finance Takes that Jenna <laughs> will put up on the video and on our show notes for people that are not listening. Um, and it shows three different Forbes magazines. Uh, so Forbes is really good at, at calling out the next, you know, Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. That's a joke for everybody that's not watching. Um, the, it, He's it's being like, facetious. It's, it's kind of four squares, right? So the first one is Elizabeth Holmes, who was the Theranos founder that had this uh, proprietary technology, was going to change the world for blood testing Supposing. and all of that. And she turned out to be a fraud. Right next to her, you have a Forbes uh, front page of Sam Bankman-Fried on it uh, before FTX went down. Uh, in the left-hand corner, uh, you have Adam Newman, who is the uh, founder of WeWork, uh, who you know that pretty guy much burned that company money. down to a, to the ground. And then, last but not least, in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, there is a tweet from Silicon Valley Bank no. uh, saying, proud to be on Forbes' annual ranking of America's best banks for the fifth straight year and to have also been named to the publication's inaugural financial all-stars list. And they were in the Forbes 2023 America's best banks. I have no comment. Yeah, so <laughs> it's... I mean, just looking at this stuff, and I know we look at this through a very narrow lens, right? But I just, I don't understand the purpose of these magazines anymore. Well, it's interesting you bring up that topic. So traditionally, let's go back a couple of decades before the evolution of the internet. You know, the editors of these financial uh, magazines were influential to the market, right? Mm -hmm. You had the weekly publication of Barron's, which, you know, was very influential. That would hit people's mailboxes Saturday morning. Yeah. Investors Business Daily. IBD, right. Very popular. Um, and as the, you know, Internet has, you know, obviously become mainstream, you know, the 
influence of these magazines has gone down and it's almost like they have to have shock oriented fronts to sell right mm-hmm. and cuz if it's just actually good advice <laughs> i shouldn't say it like that that's how, that came off bad if it was sound practical longer term oriented advice it might not sell as many magazines right i mean think of the financial news if you got on there and someone was talking about having a long term time horizon they don't have a show on the financial networks called long term money yeah they have a show <laughs> called fast money right Right. Long-term That's a really money. good point. Yeah. Right, Long-term on. money. You and I should start a show. We should. Long-term money. Yeah. Instead of fast money. Fast money. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, everyone wants to be the, the first major news outlet to interview the next. There it is. Golden or child. It. Or right? call it. Hey, you know, we, we had him on the cover. Right. We called this. So I think it just goes to show that. You know, I think so many people were, you know, brought up or taught back in the day that, you know, all these really prominent magazines and newspaper and media outlets were like, that's, those are the experts, right? This is where we get our information. If my bank isn't on the Forbes best bank list of 2023, I should look at switching. And it's just not necessarily the case. And I can't speak for, 50 years ago, you can't speak for 50 years ago and what this stuff was like, but I get the feeling that it's not what it once was, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, where these are no longer outlets that you follow their advice, if that makes sense, because this, this stuff is just pretty wild how this happens. And now we're at a point too, where I can, I I think it was Forbes or maybe it was the American economist or someone just printed a new magazine cover that says what's wrong with the banks. So now I'm looking at that and I'm like, hmm, is this bank stuff actually overdone? (laughs) The opposite, right? (laughs) Right. You 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 see these magazine covers or these newspaper covers and you think to yourself, okay, you know, we've been doing this long enough to know that I might want to take the other side of that trade. Yeah. You know, you see, you see, you see all these trends come and go at least over the last decade. Right. And whatever's on the front page of those covers, yeah, you might be at the top. Yeah, and a lot, and I would say, in my opinion, probably seventy-five percent, eighty percent of the stuff that's written in these magazines are opinions. It's not expert advice; it's people's opinion. And those Great are two point. very different Great things. Point. Two very Great different things. Point. So, and that kind of leads me into my last point. Is uh, it was a tweet from uh, Peter Maluk. Uh, on March 10th. Peter always has good stuff. He does. And he says, not a single sell rating from any Wall Street firm covering Silicon Valley Bank says everything, excuse me, you need to know about the value of analyst recommendations and price targets. And it's a snapshot of all the buy, overweight, hold, underweight sell ratings. And he was right with Silicon Valley Bank back in the 10th. average price target was $337. So again, it just goes back to what I was just saying is just because even experts in a certain field, quote unquote experts, are saying, hey, this is a, a strong buy, you can still have companies go bankrupt. Yeah, I mean, I'll give people a reminder. You go back to the great financial crisis, and you know, I lived through that. The Friday 
uh, before Lehman went under, Standard & Poor's had an A-minus credit rating on Lehman Brothers the Friday before they went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. That just tells you how fast things can happen. Right. So just don't think that, you know, when you go on to, you know, Yahoo Finance, for example, and you're looking at a stock or you're looking at a fund and it has a really high buy rating, that it means that it's safe because it's not. It, it doesn't mean that at all. That's um, a great point. So great point. Again, you just have to be careful with this stuff and what you're fed and what you're reading online. Yeah, I mean, you know, the way that I kind of take that in is those things are data points that lead to maybe an ultimate decision as you do your homework, mm -hmm. right? Not a sole factor of decision making. Is Correct. that a good way of saying it? Yeah. Yep. You ready for me? I don't know, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty tame this time. I'm pretty tame today. Okay. So my first piece is from Seth Golden on March 8th. It's an update mark on growth versus value. So let's just take a step back. And for some of our newer listeners, will you just take 60 to 90 seconds, Mark, and just try to paraphrase in your own words, what's a growth stock? What's a value stock that could be helpful? Yeah, so I think in its simplistic form, a growth stock is a company that is reinvesting most of their earnings back into the company to grow uh, their company even further, right? Mm -hmm. And a value stock is a, a company that's not growing as quick as they once were, and they're kind of just maintaining. It's a mature company, right? Yes. And value stocks tend to trade at lower valuations. When I say valuations, I'm talking the prices people are paying for certain stocks. For how much earnings they make. For how much earnings that they're generating. Growth stocks, on the other hand, try or usually have higher valuations that the price you're paying for that company's futures earnings is going to be higher because that's the anticipation is they're going to keep growing that at a quicker rate exactly right so um you know for example back in the early 2000s and through the mid you know 2015s amazon netflix apple considered a growth stock but those companies are kind of maturing more as life has gone on they're not growing as quick as they were when they were smaller right yeah I smaller mean, firms have the ability to grow quicker but once you get as big as a company as apple is now it's harder to maintain that growth rate right absolutely so you have companies go between growth stocks and value stocks and like we've talked about a couple of months ago netflix i think is now in both the s&p 500 growth index and the s&p 500 value index so i don't know how you read that but yeah, great. And um, so what I'll throw out there is now that you've explained that, you did a great job, Mark. Thank you. Seth had this chart and it goes back again. The date is March 8th. It shows the trailing 12 month P.E. spread, which is price to earnings, judging how much you're paying for those earnings. Right. It goes back the prior 12 months of the style of growth versus value versus the static point of the S&P 500 in the middle. And what you're gonna find is, for quite some time, people were paying more for the earnings in growth stocks. That should not be a surprise. Mm -hmm. So Jenna will put this chart up for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes. Well, what's happened 
is value stocks have been in vogue. They've been popular, okay? So people have been bidding up those shares. As the share price goes up and the earnings aren't keeping up with it, what happens to that price to earnings multiple? It goes up. It goes up. It's more up. expensive. It's more expensive. So what you've seen happen, and this is a rarity, you actually have parity in growth versus value among the S&P 500 in quite some time. Mm -hmm. You're paying the same amount for those earnings. So I just wanna throw that out there, that if you're a very stodgy, conservative investor that focuses on value names, this is one of those things you might wanna pay attention to. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, my next piece is an update on investor sentiment. This is from Mike Zaccardi on March 8th. He had two different pieces from uh, B of A Global Research, Mark, and I think I would like your um, response, your opinion, your thoughts after I go over this. So the first chart that Jenna's gonna put up for our YouTube viewers, again, be accessible in our show notes, is looking at 2022, versus 2023 so far, what are clients looking to do with excess cash at this time, Mark? Well, what you're gonna find is last year in 2022, 42 of the respondents uh, to this said that they would be looking at using, buying some stocks with excess, excess cash. That's down to 26% this year. Last year, only 3% saying they'd be buying bonds. Bonds had a horrible year, especially in the first half of last year. Now it's up to 29% saying that they'd be considering bonds. So I throw this out there that, let's just, I'll say it directly, sentiment is poor for stocks right now. I'm gonna have one more, next chart. The average equity allocation in someone's portfolio, again, B of A research, March 8th, this data goes back to 2017, and you're going to see that in the survey, the lowest level of stock exposure going back to 2017 with an average of 57%, the highest in the survey to give you a comparison was a little bit above 63% mark. Your thoughts when you kind of see how people are answering how, what they're doing with this excess cash today, you look at this average percentage of stock exposure, what goes through your mind? Yeah, I think it just goes to show you how worried people are right now. Um, because for the past decade, really, no one's been wanting to buy bonds, right? For good reason, too, just because the stock market has been on a tear for the past decade. And I think it goes to show you that the bonds graphic here is what really catches my eye that only 3% of people in 2022 with excess cash were looking to buy bonds in 2022. Now that's all the way up to 30% in 2023 with where, reversal. with where yields are, with people's fear in the market about everything going on in the world, whether it's inflation, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether it's China, you know, there's just a lot of fear out there, and there's been a lot of fear out there for a long time, for longer than fear has persisted in the past decade. What I mean by that is, you know, back between 2010 and, and 2020, 
there were bouts of fear, but it didn't really last very long. Mm -hmm. And now we're in this, again, a different environment where I feel like fear is starting to last a little longer, where we're kind of going from one thing to the next without any period of calmness, which I think the, the market very much needs right now is just six months of nothing going on would be very helpful. Yeah. Um, but these things do indicate that people think the world's going to end just like any other sell-off that we've had in the market. And I, I think the important thing to note too is going into 2022, investor sentiment was around all-time highs. People thought that the market could do no wrong. All you could do was make money. And now I feel like in the first half of 2023, that's the complete opposite. So I'm not saying that the market's gonna gain 30% from between now and the end of the year, but again, it's a contrarian indicator when we talk about sentiment. When people are uber bullish, that's kind of a warning sign. But when people are also really bearish, it's also like, okay, we just need to be prepared for the scenario that stocks move higher. Well said. I mean, you, you, you said it very well. The only thing I want to add is this. I've seen a lot of uh, opinions over the past couple of business days that the bears or people who are uh, wanting the market to go lower, they've had the perfect news over the past two weeks. Perfect for them. And guess what they couldn't do? Take the market lower. If you're a bear that should be concerning to you. On the opposite, it would be like, you know, you're getting all this wonderful positive news and the market doesn't go higher. The market's telling you something there, right? You got the opposite right now for bears. Silver platter the last couple of weeks. Banking crisis? Are you kidding me? And they couldn't take it lower. That's a concern if I were a bear. And this is starting to smell to me the potential for a melt-up could just it might be coming. Well, it's something that we haven't talked about really in the past year, just because the market has been lower for the past year. Yeah. But in the past, we've talked about us wanting the market to climb a wall of worry. Yes. And can you explain for people that might be new to the podcast what you mean when you say that? Yeah, I've said this over the years at different times. My meaning of climbing a wall of worry is this. You need excuses for people not to invest to when once those concerns abate or go down, more capital comes into the market. Think of it from a supply and demand metric. When there's no more excuses not to invest, all the dry powders off the sidelines, the market's perfectly priced. It's all in hindsight, of course perfectly priced, and at that point, you have an issue. I want to see the market climb a wall of worry. I'll just throw them out there right now. Banking system, FDIC insurance, inflation, what the Fed's gonna do, geopolitics, what's Q1 earnings gonna look like coming up? I could keep going. And as the market starts checking some of these boxes off, it allows more money to come off the sidelines, market moves higher. and. It would not surprise me, and again, personal opinion, I'm starting to think that 
because the Bears could not. They had a perfect news storm the last couple of weeks. This could end up being some sort of melt up, climbing this wall of worry. Um, and I'll be really curious to see how the market acts, not only going into the end of the quarter here, but how it acts going into Q1 earnings season in April. And um, I would love to see a repeat of January. I'll, put, I'll throw that out there. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be upon us pretty quickly here. So, All right. My last piece is a post um, of tracking job openings. This is pretty interesting, Mark. This is from Indeed. Indeed's one of the nation's largest job posting sites, as most people have heard this name. There's a chart that I got my hands on, and this chart is from March 7th from Indeed. And what Indeed did is they overlaid their Indeed job postings index overlaid with the BLS's JOLTS report, which is the um, monthly listing of job openings nationwide. And would you guess? It's not only very accurate, the Indeed, but I could argue that could become a forward-looking indicator. Mm -hmm. So Jenna will put this chart up for our YouTube viewers. And what you're going to see is this chart goes back to 2020. And again, you'll see the overlay between the two. And what's really interesting is the JOLTS data is lagging right now by about roughly three months, roughly. And if things continue to track the Indeed jobs posting index, Mark, you could continue to see JOLTS come in. And that's something I think the Fed would welcome. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. Yep. So I just thought it was interesting. You know, people are kind of looking for, you know, a little bit of an edge might be kind of what's that forward looking indicator. This is a real time one that if you're curious about job openings, instead of waiting for jolts, you might want to pay attention to this. Yeah. And then just a very quick thing. I know I mentioned it a couple seconds ago. Reminder about Q1 earnings season. That's going to begin coming up here in April. I'm I took the top 10 uh, stocks in the S&P 500 index. As a reminder, the S&P 500 index is a market-weighted index. So the companies with the largest market capitalization, price times shares outstanding. And I'm going to go in order just so people get a feel for what these release dates are, because these stocks tend to have more volatility up and down around these earnings release dates. Mm -hmm. Apple is May 4th, Microsoft is April 25th, Amazon May 4th, NVIDIA May 24th, Google May 4th, Berkshire Hathaway May 29th, Tesla is April 26th, uh, ExxonMobil May 2nd, uh, Meta shares or Facebook May 3rd, United Health Group April 14th, Johnson & Johnson April 18th, JP Morgan April 14th. These are not recommendations for or against any of these names when we talk about any individual name on this podcast. But again, I'm just picking the top 10 by market cap. Know these earnings uh, are around uh, the corner here, and that will be probably more, more the dominant uh, narrative in the market as we get deeper and deeper into April. Yeah, and, it, and fitting for the environment that we're in right now, it's obviously like it always does, it's going to kick it off with the major banks in the U.S. on that that Friday, the 14th, and then there'll be a couple more banks uh, in the beginning of that next week. But that's when the the really the meat of earnings season kicks in. So correct, sir. Correct, uh, sir. Have a couple weeks until then, but um, looking forward to see what some of these companies are are saying. Yeah. So, um, 
Really quickly, uh, financial planning topic of the week uh, came from a article from Laura Davison on FA Mag, and it talks about um, the potential uh, tax hikes uh, that the administration wants to impose. Um, so she says the president's budget includes a range of tax hikes on wealthier and higher earning Americans to pay for proposed spending programs while reducing the overall budget deficit over the course of the next decade. These include increasing the top marginal tax rate to 39.6% and raising the top long-term capital gains rate from 20% to also 39.6%. For those earning at least $1 million or more in order to equalize taxation on wage and investment income for high earners. Other proposed measures would limit the amount uh, taxpayers with incomes over 400,000 could hold in Roth IRAs, apply wash sales rules to cryptocurrencies, and eliminate the ability of real estate investors to conduct like-kind exchanges when the deferred gain is worth more than 500000 for single taxpayers and $1 million for joint taxpayers. Among tax credits proposed in the budget, the one most likely to benefit uh, financial planning clients would be an increase in the child tax credit from $2,000 per child to $3,000 per child for children six years and older and up to $3,600 for children under the age of six. I am personally rooting for that tax credit to go up, obviously, <laughs> with my wife due in August. Uh, last but not least, some of these measures, uh, for example, increasing the top income and capital gains tax rates were previously proposed as part of President Biden's American Families Plan tax proposals released in 2021. Considering that these measures did not pass when Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate, it seems likely that the proposals will face even stronger headwinds with a Republican-controlled House. So everything that I just talked about has not been passed yet. I think it's going to be very difficult to pass just because there is a split Congress now. Uh, but these are the proposals that are, that are on the table. If I graduated from the same university that his economist team graduated from, I would be embarrassed. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting proposal. I mean, we've heard tax proposals for a long time now, both at the income level and capital gains rate level. Um, but, again, it's one of those things that I think it's going to be really hard to to pass. It's going to be hard for, for these senators and, and congressmen Absolutely. and women to go back to their constituents oh, yeah. and say, you know, for a large part, we'll affect a lot of their donors. I was going to say, go back uh, to your large donors. By the way, I doubled your say, cap gains tax. Yeah, that's not hey, going to Can I have another check? That's not going to fly. You know, um, multiple clients over the past couple of weeks have asked the question to me, Mark, in regards to the potential of a government shutdown this summer, right? And my response remains the same that I mentioned on the podcast. I think it was about a month ago. Likelihood's high. I do think there will be a lot of saber rattling uh, this upcoming summer. The potential for a shutdown's high. And I'll just throw it out there that historically, when you look at how it affects the stock market, it's usually a, a nothing burger. Um, so from my perspective, you know, let them fight it out over there. Let them do their thing and then just don't make any surprise legislation and let, let Wall Street kind of calm down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let that be a distraction, but I 
don't think it's going to be a positive or a negative for the market. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you there. I think, you know, people want it to be a positive or a negative, right? Because they think, oh, the government shut down, you know, it has to affect the stock market. We've been through government shutdowns yeah, in the past. Yeah, no, it's neutral. Right. Um, we do have one listener question uh, from Dennis this week. So thank you, Dennis. We appreciate it. Uh, and as always, um, anyone else, feel free to send in questions at inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. Uh, again, we want to talk about things that you all are interested in and that you have questions about. Absolutely. Uh, so Dennis says, we've been hearing a lot lately concerning the banking industry issues. How about credit unions? Should we take notice of them as well? How do credit unions function as opposed to banks? Are there any regulation differences between the two? So this is a really good question, Dennis, and I'm sure you're not the only one that is wondering this. So I'll start off and kind of let you sure. uh, put your two cents in, Matt. So the, the, the major difference between credit unions and banks is their ownership structure, right? So credit unions are owned by its members or its customers mm -hmm. interchangeable there sure and it's not for profit where banks are owned by shareholders and it is for profit right mm -hmm. so we get this question a lot too is you know why at credit unions or at smaller community banks do they offer higher rates on their checking and savings account well they don't have to necessarily worry about pleasing shareholders and worry about squeezing every little penny out of their margins like bigger banks do yep. right yep that's just a, a simplistic answer for it is that banks have to answer to shareholders and shareholders want to see a return on their money correct sir right so why would banks give higher interest rates if they don't have to correct right so that i would say is the the biggest different there um, so they don't have the stress that credit unions don't have the stress of publicly traded banks when it comes to the shareholder issue. Well said. Um, and that, again, comes in the form of higher interest rates on checking and savings accounts, comes in the form of lower interest rates on loans for like cars or a mortgage, right? Correct. Um, another common question um, that you might have too, Dennis, is... Do credit unions fall under the FDIC insurance? And uh, the, the answer is yes and no. $250,000 in a bank account at a credit union is insured, but just insured by a different regulatory body, right? So it's the yes. National Credit Union Administration, but you still have the same, excuse me, dollar amount protection. Correct. Okay. Um, and a, another difference is, each member or customer at a credit union gets one vote for board of directors, right? Or, or electing officials at the credit union. Whereas in a bank, it's dependent on the number of shares that you own. So you could have an institutional money manager that has a significant sway over a vote for a board of directors, for example, at a publicly traded bank. Absolutely. But at a credit union, no matter how much money you have with them, you have one account, you get one vote. Correct. Right? Or one person, one social security number equals one vote. Correct. Okay. Anything else that you want to throw in there? No, I mean, I think that, you know, there's the, tends to be a technological difference between, you know, credit unions and some of the bigger banks that actually have bigger budgets. They have a little more, you know, technology usually mm -hmm. oriented with them. That tends to be one of those other differences. Um, 
but no, I mean, what's happening today, I, I would throw caution out there that just because something's a credit union doesn't mean that it's uh, safer or not safer than a publicly traded bank. Mm-hmm. I just want to kind of throw that out there that, you know, I wouldn't view it as safer or more unsafe because each of these banks are making decisions as to what they do with their deposits and their reserves. And that could be different from credit union to credit union, publicly traded bank to publicly traded bank. Yeah. That's yeah, what exactly. I want to throw out there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I personally haven't read anything that would make me more or less concerned about credit unions or banks. Um, that's why I just think it's, it's a good rule of thumb that, you know, you follow that $250,000 FDIC insured or national credit union NCUA uh, insurance and don't have more than that at a bank, even though, or a credit union, even though there are talks of making that unlimited. I don't think you should bank on that. Correct. And, you know, you and I talked about it right before the podcast started. If you look at the market yesterday on Wednesday when the Fed had the announcement, you know, people were kind of really looking at, you know, the market and when it started to trade lower. Um, people are speculating it wasn't necessarily because of what Powell was saying. It was because of what Janet Yellen was saying about sticking to this 250 uh, FDIC insurance topic. Mm-hmm. wasn't really in regards to what Powell was saying. Right. Speculation. But um, I think that's definitely something the government's going to have to tackle. Or my concern is some of these smaller banks are going to continue to have an exodus of deposits. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Concerned. The, the Concerned bigger going to get bigger. Concern of mine. So... Um, Anything else before we leave it there for the week? We are almost at the end of this quarter. So including today, Mark, we got seven trading days. The market just opened 15 minutes ago. So I'm going to include that in my statistic right there. Seven trading days left and we close out Q1, my friend. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. We're already one quarter through uh, 2023. feel yeah. like we just had the new year. So yeah. Um, As always, thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to episode number 193, the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a great week. And before we sign off, Matt, uh, who is your pick to win March Madness? Alabama. 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 So uh, I don't have any uh, affiliation other than I looked at it and I just thought that they could make a run here. I had them initially. So I had them going all the way. We'll see what happens with that. Okay. What about you? Uh, Houston. Houston. Houston this year. So uh, both of them are still in it. So doesn't Miami play Houston coming up here? I think so. I think you're right. I so I like Miami on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, hope you all enjoy the rest of March Madness. Uh, enjoy the nice weather coming your way. And we'll talk with you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have 
questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.